Hello, you're listening to Copy Time, a podcast series on markets and economies from DBS Group Research. I'm Taimur Beg, Chief Economist. Welcome to our 62nd episode. Today, we're going to welcome back to Copy Time Paul Hebert, Head of Systemic Risk and Financial Institutions Division at the European Central Bank. While most of his career has been in the ECB, Paul has also worked at the International Monetary Fund and the Government of Canada. Paul Hebert, welcome back to Copy Time. Thanks a lot, Timur. Great to be with you again. Great to have you. Let's uh, begin with the pandemic's impact on the financial sector, Paul. Uh, we've had very adverse public health outcomes, weak economic performance, thankfully something of a rebound this year. But the contrast is with asset prices, which have risen sharply, and financial markets, which have been overall very, very buoyant. So this juxtaposition of buoyant markets versus still weak activity, does that reduce or increase financial stability risks? Good question. Um, I think I'm going to have to give you, unfortunately, the classic two-handed economist answer. And it, it depends. It. <laughs> <laughs> and basically, the idea is, you know, there is this disconnect. It's clear. And we've been talking about this for a while. Um, and it is largely in an unprecedented situation. I mean, this, this pandemic is obviously something we've not witnessed historically at least in this type of constellation. And effectively, that means it, it depends on how it evolves and it depends on the amplifying features, um, particularly as complacent markets you know, might still, as Chuck Prince was saying in the old days, um, when the music plays, we continue to dance. And when you continue to dance, maybe it's in more and more exotic ways, let's say. Um, so, effectively, <laughs> so effectively, the idea is you know, markets are forward-looking. Um, and as they're forward-looking, this was an unprecedented, but it was, a, a, hopefully, a transitory shock. Um, so, of course, you might have this disconnect that, that persists for a little while, um, but it's a bit, you know, like this idea that two series have to cointegrate you have in, in, in economics. Fundamentals must underpin asset pricing, and there can be these periods where they do disconnect, but they do reconnect. And, of course, our concern is will they reconnect from the upside um, in terms of, you know, financial markets are right and the, the economy catches up, or the downside is it going to be more that, you know, financial markets have to crash down to earth. Um, so, for now, I can say, you know, what we're looking at in terms of data we do see these risks potentially easing. Um, and that's because, at least here in Europe locally, um, and I think that's true more broadly in the global economy, there is a brightening near-term outlook. Um, the economic data seem to be getting better, um, and the financial um, sort of trajectory seems to be one where you see the economics catching up. Um, and that is particular for corporates and banks. Um, now, of course, we've all become a bit amateur epidemiologists in this, in this pandemic. Um, and with all the needed caveats, I can humbly say, you know, I think our, 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 it is still tied to this, this health situation evolving. You know, and there's this need to impose further restrictions, depending on the vaccinations, depending on the variants. It still is very important. So all this is a bit tentative as such. I think from the economic standpoint, though, what I can say is near-term risks, risks may be easing. I think for us, the bigger concern, I think it's a concern shared by our peers in the, the official sector, is that you might still see um, actually that medium-term risks are rising. So it's sort of pivot, if you will, in this term structure of financial stability risk, where near-term risks come down a bit, but you have a bit of a steepening, perhaps, in that financial stability um, term structure. And that basically, um, you'd, you'd ask about asset prices. I think it comes down to which asset price segment. Um, so financial asset prices um, certainly have risen, and they're quite high. And, and there's a concern there that potentially some valuation metrics are stretched. Real estate markets is another. I mean, it could be a bit more damaging, um, and for different reasons. You have residential real estate, which has been growing rapidly um, throughout the crisis and, and effectively leaves us in a situation where we're a bit scratching our heads as to whether these valuation metrics are sustainable alongside debt dynamics. 
but also the commercial real estate market, um, which is obviously facing its own challenges as we move into a new paradigm. So effectively, I hope that comes full circle around to this, this two-sided answer. There were good reasons to be a bit uh, on the one hand and the other hand. And in my wonderful world, of, it depends. Sure, Paul. And, and you, as you correctly pointed out at the end, that in terms of real estate prices, yes, uh, household balance sheets are probably substantially better than they were leading into the global financial crisis, at least in the U.S., that is very clear. And although we have had uh, affordability issues come up with a sharp rise in residential property prices, we're still not talking about the kind of fragility we saw on household balance sheets building up leading into the great crisis of 2008. 2009. Would that be an apt description of the households in Europe as well? Because I'm sort of coming at it from the U.S. angle. Yeah, no, I think so. I think that's it's a reasonable way to characterize. And let's say, you know, the only thing is one has to account for is effectively interest rates do remain very low. Um, so a lot of the debt contracted these low interest rates is conditional, predicated on, on, a, on an interest rate rise, which is uh, gradual enough and, you know, easy enough to digest such that it doesn't create debt servicing strains. I think on the other hand, what the other point is, is important to, to, to mention is macroprudential policies, the advent of these policies was post-crisis. And you could think of these in many different ways. I guess the most simple way to think about them, and it's, it's not bad in a stylized way to think of them this way, is they limit the sector, effectively the, the degree of leverage in these markets. So loan to values, loan to income, debt service to income. These sorts of measures are, are, look a lot more sustainable than they did going into the, the global financial crisis, in a sense, in, uh, either in the US or in Europe. So that would give us a little bit, I guess, of a, an element of reassurance that that side of the equation is at least taken care of well. All right, so let's stay with that issue a little longer in terms of rate sensitivity. Can you give us a sense of the uh, various segments of the financial sector and their varying risk sensitivity? Sure. No, and I think I think what's true to note as as we as, as we think about this question is there's a lot more debt in the economy post pandemic, and that's certainly one of the legacies of this pandemic is there was a lot of debt needed to to effectively cushion what was essentially a transitory shock, but via debt markets, you know, time profile effectively moving forward uh, or a backward consumption or investment. Um, I think what's important when you think about this idea of rate sensitivity. Is um we we do and 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 often do test banks rate sensitive and we're relatively um, you know comforted by the fact that it seems to be going well in, in the side of the banking sector. Our concern is really more about the non-bank financial intermediaries. Um, so they they've been providing a a, a growing role in, in in finance. Um, and this is you know things like investment funds, insurance companies, pension funds would be the ones I'm thinking about here. Um, and in the search for yield they've had over recent years with relatively low rates. Um, with, uh, scramble to try and find yield where they can. Um, what we've seen is a, a clear increase in the duration risk of their debt securities. And this is really at multi-year highs now. Um, so of course that does leave them to further rise in yields, uh, sort of that sensitivity there, or correction in credit markets. Um, so with this with duration risk, effectively, what we're seeing is, is, is that you have insurance companies and pension funds um, who, you know, they could be uh, better off relative terms because they have uh, the fall in the value of their sort of long-term liabilities with that sector's negative duration gap could insulate them somewhat. But I think it's really when you zero it down, then it's investment funds, which are a big concern for us. Uh, partly both because of this duration question, but partly both also because they're, they're lending into riskier and riskier markets as they search for yield. Um, so what we're seeing is, you know, the counterparties at the side effectively are, are weakening in terms of the credit fundamentals. So we have, I'd say just give you some numbers around a quarter of what we see in, in terms of the euro area. So this is strictly in Europe. I think it's, it's indicative of the global economy. 
around a quarter of their debt holdings are subject to a negative credit outlook or credit watch by rating agencies. Um, so clearly at the risk of downgrade. And as we're all aware, um, Tamor, you know, you see that rate sensitivity will have a kink sometimes when you reach such investment grade, non-investment grade status. I think the other point to mention in terms of numbers is around half of these, these exposures tend to be triple B rated. So just one notch above this high yield status. And therefore, that, that potential kink is there. So I can give you some you know, linear numbers in terms of sensitivities, but I think it's that kink which just concerns us mostly from a financial stability standpoint. Um, so that rate sensitivity, I think, if you're to think about where we're, we're most concerned in the financial sector, probably inside of asset managers, investment firms. Um, so if we sort of look at the intersection of higher debt ratios, and you just pointed out the higher duration risk, where does it take us in terms of solvency risk? Um, I mean, are we seeing vulnerable companies raising their leverage more than sound companies? Yeah, no, I think that that, that question of distribution of the risk is a key one. Um, you know, what is true is that policy, certainly in, in Europe, now I think this is indicative of the advanced economies by writ large, is that there was a huge role of policy in providing a bridge um, through the pandemic, lockdowns and the like, to what would be hopefully the, the shore on the other side. But, you know, this is a question, what is that shore on the other side something as a bit of the bridges to nowhere type we saw in Japan and the, their, their aftermath of their crisis, or more this idea that um, it's a delayed day of reckoning, you know, might have concerned there, um, versus maybe a bridge to somewhere that's just a brighter place and you just see what's, what's sort of go through the situation without scarring. Um, so what the zero gravity situation we had, at least here, What's interesting, if we look at the numbers, we would be relatively comforted. Um, bankruptcies um, here in, in Europe, the corporate side, actually declined in 2020, around 20% lower than the 2019 pre-pandemic levels. So that zero gravity might even be not the app characteristic. It was something that was defying gravity completely. Um, what we saw is this you know, policy support was key there. And as that fades, we've now seen that your insolvency is now starting to increase, but it's not increasing enormously. Um, so to get back to your question, which is, that's the aggregate, of course, the distribution question. So I think there's two uh, angles to this, the sectors, the economic sectors. What we see is, of course, ones that were particularly hard hit by the pandemic and still have some scarring, transport, accommodation, food. Um, these ones are still seeing some elements of potential stress or vulnerability that could be um, coming as policy measures fade. But the other side is firms. And I think firms is actually even the more interesting one to look at. Um, so through the granular data connections we've been doing, um, what we see is firms' gross indebtedness. The trends there was interesting that firms that tended to be highly indebted to start with were the ones borrowing most aggressively in the pandemic. Um, so clearly you've seen a run-up in debt from already high levels. Um, and this, of course, increases their sensitivity to shocks. Uh, you could say, okay, that's gross debt. What about net debt, net of cash? Um, there is a lot of cash in the corporate sector. The problem is its distribution. Um, so it's distribution across from the sectors and both firm size is such that we're not terribly comfortable thinking that that cash is where it needs to be should stress come along. Um, so with that in mind, what we are still seeing, just to add a bit of, you know, to get away from my usual financial stability doomsday thinking, it's part of my role in, at the ECB here, into an element of trying to be a bit more balanced. I think corporate profitability is increasing. Um, we're seeing as we move out of the, the, the worst stage of the pandemic. So that is certainly catching up and providing some comfort. And debt servicing capacity is still really, really quite good. Um, it's called, again, it's predicated on a previous question about interest rates, um, but the extent that that remains um, stable or increases moderately, um, we'd still be relatively comfortable. So for, so for now, 
Armageddon is not coming, um, but clearly there are some firms, there's going to be, have to be some Schumpeterian dynamic to get some of the firms maybe moving along in terms of creative destruction into a new sort of post-pandemic uh, framework. And you, you, often people talk this way about the pandemic. It is effectively with something which just effectively accelerated pre-existing trends in the economy. And those trends will necessitate clearly some entry and exit of firms. Right. We don't want uh, the Japan-style zombification. We do want uh, entry and exit and uh, some sort of uh, creative destruction, as you point out. Paul, we briefly talked about property markets earlier. I want to go a little deeper, if possible. So in the context of you know, sharply rising residential property prices uh, and the impact on household balance sheet, uh, can you give us a little more uh, sort of idea about how things are in Europe? Yeah, sure. No, that is a property... It's, it's an interesting one because it's a little bit been in the background for this pandemic is something which has just been steadily rising, not much of an impact to the pandemic at all on this particular segment. So you wouldn't even realize if you looked at these data, there was a pandemic, in, in real, at least in the residential segment. It is important to distinguish. So, so the residential segment, certainly we've seen unassailable momentum there. It's just been continuing to rise. Now, if, you know, there's a bunch of factors, some cyclical, some structural there. Um, which are underlying this, you know, favorable lending conditions are obvious. Um, support measures, which were providing, you know, containing defaults and mortgage loans. You had excessive savings that were accumulating during the pandemic. Um, portfolio considerations, of course, you know, mm -hmm. this, this idea that, you know, you have to put your assets some, somewhere, financial assets potentially have stretched in value. Why not real estate seems to be relatively safe and also as, you know, a hedge against having too much cash. It's also the structural stuff, the working from home. As you can see from my, my background, I'm clearly not at the office right now. This is impacting, continues to impact the demand for real estate. Um, so with all of this in mind, you, you package this all together, of course. Um, it's this idea that we, we, we do see that residential real estate prices ultimately, though, are about at pre-global financial crisis levels in European countries. So it's not that we see value, you know, the prices necessarily at, particularly low levels, they're pretty high levels at the moment, and valuation stretch certainly seems to be there, particularly for those economies which are already seeing real estate growth quite rapidly. We're seeing more of that now lapped onto it as we move forward. And indebtedness is importantly higher as real estate you know, prices rise. Obviously, you have to term out mortgages. You're seeing mortgages, more mortgages in terms of LTVs, which are potentially rising. Um, the tricky thing, of course, for us is going to be this idea of, you know, is this sustainable or not? It's going to fundamentally you know, rest upon the same story I was talking about earlier. Do fundamentals catch up with real estate or does real estate catch up with fundamentals? And the distribution does certainly matter. No? Um, so again, I think on the real estate, the residential side, we are seeing more and more concern from us, from other international organizations um, about this, this unassailable rise cannot continue at least at the same pace forever. Uh, at the same time, commercial real estate is a completely different market. It's been shocking to see just how much they can disconnect. And commercial real estate, of course, when it comes to office, when it comes to retail, has really been suffering. Um, and arguably some big changes are likely coming in that segment as we move forward. And the relative supplies between these two segments, the zoning regulations and the like, will surely dictate um, how they also re-equilibrate going forward. So one sector to certainly watch. Absolutely, and we're seeing the exact same dynamic play out here in Singapore as well, uh, Paul, the, the disconnect between the residential and the commercial side. Um, so we normally, when we talk about duration risks on portfolios, we talk about you know how the average duration of the bonds in your portfolio, or 
you know, refinancing needs down the road and so on. Um, but there are other longer dated risks. And I remember, Paul, the first time you told me about your job and financial stability division, you told me that most of your time is going to be spent actually on climate risk related work. So let's uh, devote the rest of the podcast on that. Um, I see that the ECB has been speaking a lot about climate change. And uh, considering all the other risks that we talk about, how would you put climate risk on par with them? Yeah, I guess, you know, given the severity of the risk, we've just been through a massive pandemic and the situation's, you know, relatively fragile. It seems a bit odd to start thinking about climate risk in the same par as part of the same terms. Um, so to be fair, in terms of the time I'm spending on these topics, it's partly a function of where we are in the learning curve. So climate change, we're relatively you know, on the steep part. So compared to the other topics. Um, so I, I wouldn't necessarily say the near term risks would be quite as pronounced for now, but they're growing. And I think, you know, a couple of things worth mentioning on climate risk uh, in terms of we might think of these as long dated risks, but I think that would be a, a little bit short sighted, if, if you will, <laughs> long short, um, because climate risk actually could be sooner than we think um, in a couple of mm -hmm. ways. So first, on the physical risk side, you know, as you recall, climate risk has its physical risk, transition risk dimension. So on the physical risk side, so climate hazards, wildfires, uh, floods, uh, heat stress, water stress, these climate events um, actually this summer here in Europe and in the US as well, you saw the same, and many many other places abroad, is, is that they've been really starting to be a bit more pronounced. We had an intergovernmental panel and climate change report suggesting we are already 1.1 degrees warmer than pre-industrial times. It's locked in at baseline. That's no longer risk, that's baseline. And we're 0.4 degrees away from this 1.5 degree Paris aligned um, target. And the two degree target, I think would bring us to this tipping point parts, you know, ice sheet melts, you have sort of uh, changes in global currents, the, the, the jet stream, whatever you have. All of these things are quite important and potentially amplifying. So let in mind the salience of, 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 of physical risks is certainly something that matters to us. I think financially, bringing this all back to the financial sphere, the insurance sector, of course, is the one that's going to be front and center. Um, so you saw floods, unfortunately, very tragic ones here in Northern Europe and tragic wildfires in Southern Europe this year. Um, and these were big, big loss events. Um, and insured losses there were expecting to be in you know, billions uh, ranges for, for, for the Euro-area insurance sector. Um, but it's not just an insurance sector issue. I think much of our work we've been seeing is that the banking sector is also exposed and lending into this. And we'll have to probably adapt its portfolios too, um, as well as, of course, the asset management sector, as you know, investor mandates start to demand these sorts of things uh, in particular. So that's the, the physical risk side. The transition risk side, of course, is indeed, I've already been hinting at this. This is transition to net zero um, Paris aligned targets. And you know that's going to be probably financial repricing, reorientation of financial flows, which will follow from this. And it could be sooner than we think again. Um, this idea there's a proliferation of initiatives in the private sectors, the official sectors. Uh, it's going to obviously imply more disclosures. Um, it's going to probably imply intensifying net zero initiatives. And all of this, of course, is going to potentially open up the door to, to potentially more marked uh, elements and in, 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 in imprints you see in the financial sector. And this, this idea that you might have some feedbacks um, as climate change interacts with financial outcomes, with economic outcomes, and you have this feedback in terms of lending flows which start to reorient. Again, we talked about Schumpeterian dynamics. Here's a clear case. You could have a lot of fermentary and exit in this space. So it's, it's again, one we're watching it's slow burning, it's moving along as, as the pandemic comes and goes in these big shocks, but it's something we're certainly concerned about. Right, I am struck by your phrase that it's probably going to happen sooner than you think. 
Uh, I read this striking headline yesterday, which was, it was in the context of the U.S., but I think it applies generally, that this past summer was the warmest on recent memory. It may will be the coldest summer we have over the next 100 years. So it's, uh, you know, it's just going to gradually increase. And I thought that was a very striking way of you know, bringing one's attention to what lies ahead. Um, Paul, last year, uh, when you kindly came on this podcast, uh, we had this discussion about work on measuring and modeling climate change impacts for the European Union. I think you said something, I still remember the phrase was, uh, what, what you want to regulate, you have to measure, or you, know, you can only regulate those we can measure. So tell us about the work that you've done on this over the last year. Sure thing. So um, we, we had this foundational framework we were doing last year, and I was, we were sort of at the beginnings of it in 2019, 2020. Um, this idea that basically there's, there's four different parts you have to think about this climate risk question. Um, first is, you know, this economic relevance of climate change um, has been increasingly, I, I think this, I talked about a governmental panel and climate change report, it's increasingly showing from climate scientists that there will be important economic impacts, that's clear. Um, and that could impact systemic risk with large shocks. So the second point in the framework, of course, is you know, financial market repricing is likely to become more important as these risks become more salient. We've seen even research suggest this, that, that we have a salience bias. We have a sort of uh, a, a bias as, as, as investors often in particular, or people lending in the real economy of thinking about what's immediately in front of us. The pandemic was a clear case of this. That we had you know, neglected these high, high you know, high potential loss events um, given a low probability in the near term, at least from historic norms. So that financial repricing is likely to occur. And I think that the, the third and fourth parts of our, our framework is that financial exposures then do matter. You want to map that out and understand where's the first order impacts and then conduct as a fourth element forward-looking assessments to try and understand how they'll evolve and some potential dynamic amplifiers. Um, so we've been doing a lot of work here in refining the scope for measurement. Um, that is but you know improving what we know in terms of transition risk or physical risk exposures um, and the suitability of modeling for questions related to climate in particular the, the horizon so much of our modeling framework and i think that's not dissimilar to what you see in the private sector uh, that in the official sector we have generally a, a two to five year horizon for most of what we look at you know that's a function of these dynamic stochastic general equilibrium type of thinking that we generally have there's a steady state the economy moves around this. We're generally, you know, we are an institution responsible for cyclical policy, and therefore we're trying to engineer policies which help to smooth out cycles. But of course, when you talk about a 30-year, a 50-year horizon, you have to think about a particularly different class of models, and, and that's the world we're in currently. Is trying to bring that through in terms of the modeling, whilst having a better measurement basis to apply this. So, if you want, I could share some findings um, a bit more detail. Yeah. Okay, let's, let's say that I think if, if I'm going to drill it down through all of this into basically a couple of, of, of straightforward findings. One is con risk concentration. Um, I think what, what our insight we saw from mapping out millions of, 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 of exposures of, of um, you know, thousands of, of, of financial institutions to firms was that we saw that you saw concentrations which are pretty important. I think the other point was about past dependence. So much of this again is on the long horizon and that horizon is not independent of some of the measures taken today. Let me talk about each in turn. So risk concentrations. Um, so on that side, we, we've seen certainly geographic, sectoral, institution level. Let me talk about each. So on, on, on the side of regions, the geographic side, it's really about physical risk here. Um, and what, you know, I talked earlier about types of physical risk I'm thinking of. So floods, 
related to wildfires, related to heat stress, water stress, and importantly, sea level rises might be a bit later dated in, in, the, in the century, but say over the next 20 years or so, um, what we're seeing is, is the likelihood, at least here and locally in Europe, is that rivers tend to be the, the main source of flooding risk. Um, mm. And we've seen that manifest itself in, in recent years. And wildfires, uh, wildfires in particular, are becoming much more prevalent. So you're seeing this dichotomy between too much water, too little in particular areas, heat stress, water stress as well. Now, if we take all of this together, there's a strong geographic orientation. But what we actually were surprised to see is that the, the percentage of your area banking sector exposures to this risk were quite high when you take all the risks together. Around 30% of their, their portfolios actually were in areas of high physical risk now, over the next 20 years. So clearly, those portfolios will have to adapt. Um, that's you know nearly a, nearly a, 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 you know almost a third of their portfolio would have to adapt. And that's going to be quite a big shock for the financial sector. That's on the side of regions. On the side of sectors, so that and what we saw on the transition risk side is uh, confirmed a bit our view that you have your area banking sector balance sheets um, exposures to highly emitting firms quite substantial again, around 15% of their collective um, balance sheets and mainly in, in the sectors you'd expect, electricity, transportation, construction, and actually interesting manufacturing when you start to term out the scope of emissions, so downstream emissions intensities, which are generally not reported by firms, um, but estimated by some, some third-party um, data providers. So with all of that in mind, um, what we see is that when we run through some sensitivity analyses, our concern is not just the sector allocation, but potentially firms within sectors. And again, a, a big insight for us was that we saw that actually, you know, your sectoral allocation as a firm only explains part of your, your, your emissions intensity. A lot of it actually varies within sectors. And credit rating agencies, as we know, they, they tend to rate relative to other firms in, in a given particular cohort. So what we found is around 10% of bank balance sheets could be subject to this credit re-rating risk. Um, as you see, firms with emissions intensities, which are quite distant from, say, the sectoral average, um, be, be potentially a, a bit more uh, subject, a bit subject to more credit risk uh, scrutiny, either because of, of sentiment changes or carbon prices could obviously um, could could change this as we see more and more policy initiatives in the sphere. Now, just to, to round off on the 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 the, the, the concentration side, so you have the regional side, you have the sectoral side, or within sectors. What we saw interestingly also, and this I think was a big surprise to us, is that these exposures to physical risks, so I talked earlier about this 30% of banking sector balance sheets being oriented towards areas of high climate sort of risk, would be actually, um, it's only relatively few banks which um, harbor a lot of this risk. So clearly some specific systemic banks could be ones of particular concern. So on a systemic risk concern um, lens, we might be worried actually about some key nodes being propagators of stress. We have to watch those ones. Um, and on the transition risk side, I think it's really not so much about banks, um, but what we're seeing is more about the asset management sector, where at least here locally within Europe, over half of investments we saw are tilted towards high emitting firms uh, of, of these, these investment funds. And that, you know, if you take this taxonomy of the European Union, it's around 1% of the assets are actually aligned to this taxonomy. So 99% of the, the legwork lies ahead. So all of that told, you know, risk concentrations are big. They're either big at the level of regions, the big at the level of sectors, the big at the level of firms, financial and non-financial. Now, just to, to quickly round out on the path dependent side, of course, much of this is path dependent. So what I've told you so far is very static. Um, so what we're trying to do is model the horizon a bit longer. So we've moved to a 30-year horizon instead of a two to five-year horizon. 
Um, and what we see interestingly is a couple of things about firms is that one is that the physical risk losses, um, when is it that they become dominant? So obviously transition risk, physical risk is, is a delicate interplay. Um, what we'd expect to see is around 15 years time based on current emissions profiles. You'd, you'd expect to see that physical risk become dominant and natural catastrophes start to become highly destabilizing. They already are destabilizing now, but highly destabilizing. Um, and that the first order losses you'd see, um, particularly in firms, I think it would be much more emissions intensive than ones where you see probably the default rise much, much more than the average. So I think this, this path dependence is clear that the, the, the sooner the action in terms of tackling some of these physical risk things, the less that that's going to be manifest in terms of major losses going forward. So again, it may be you know, 15 years out, um, but some of this anticipatory element will probably come into the pricing of assets already now. And this is something we have to watch. Right, but I think it's a very useful way of you know, putting this framework together. Um, explain to me exposure mapping and modeling. I understand that your team is doing a lot of work on that too. Yes, yeah, so the exposure mapping side is of course this idea that um, we, we really are taking the granular exposures of, it's, it's interesting to say that you have effectively climatological risk hazards. So our big, I think, innovation this round of work has been trying to actually take physical climate risk, climate hazards, map them back to economic impacts than to finance. Um, and that's something which we hadn't really seen out in the literature that much so far as, as economics already has enough problems with real and financial interactions without layering into climate on top of this. Um, so let's say with, with, with this in mind, what we've tried to do is, is at least try to say, you know, climate hazards could impact productive assets. What, what assets actually sit on a particular 100 metered squared uh, plot versus another? And how could those assets be at risk? So if you have you know, rising sea levels or rising rivers are going to affect you know, within a particularly geographically uh, contained area, floods, um, landslides could add to this and the like. Uh, wildfires on the other hand could spread quite a bit and create some scope for, for potential um, distribution or dissemination, which is larger. But by and large, what you want to know is, do I have there a firm which is productive or do I have just a sort of holiday home or do I just have plain fields or forests? Now, the idea is, of course, if you have a productive firm, the economic impacts could be much higher. Then you have to ask yourself, is a productive firm part of a, a global company? Does it have value chain implications and the like? So this is what basically the next step we were at. So once we had this economic uh, susceptibility to climate change, we could then measure the, the, the financial um, exposures to these risks. And what we have, of course, being in a central bank uh, supervisor here, our access to banking data is much better than anything else. Um, so we were able to really map this through credit registers, through really, really granular detail, who owns, who has, who has that exposure in terms of the financial institution to that economic risk. Um, once you have that economic risk score, and you have to ask yourself then a few questions about what is the collateral backing that, is it insured? These types of questions become really important, obviously, when it comes to to the actual exposures and understanding net versus gross exposures. Um, so we did a lot of work on this, uh, and I think that's been particularly helpful in better understanding this, this idea that you might have um, you know, initially in, in a first round understanding gross exposures with a helpful map. But you, you'll have financial institutions coming to you, yes, but this is hedged and we need to understand a bit how that is hedged. Um, on, on the side of, uh, so you'd asked about the modeling side, but I think it's certainly an, er an area of, of trying to build in these models with much longer horizons as a whole set of challenges. We can get into those shortly. Um, but I think those challenges are basically going to be about trying to back out in this set of models, plausible estimates, which are a bit in the stress testing sort of uh, mentality of plausible, um, you know, sort of extreme but plausible scenarios. 
um, over a particularly long horizon takes on a whole new meaning when you're at 30 years instead of two or three years. And this is, I think, we're still moving along the, the, the learning curve, but it's getting to a steeper part, but it's still not flat. Let's put it that way. Oh, I'm not for sure about that. I mean, we struggle to put together data for macro models, and here you are looking at multiple decade duration and uh, for, for these uh, work. Uh, this brings me to that, yeah, the mundane part of the question. And I, I want you to elaborate on what you just said, which is the data and methodological challenges that you're encountering in sort of capturing the bank and non-bank exposure to firms. Yeah, so I think uh, with, with climate risk, what's clear is, is we are still seeing this sort of dearth of, of measurements. Um, so on the measurement side, reported information is still pretty patchy. Um, so there's not so many commonly agreed indicators in, in the mix, as a clear, clearly defined set of what needs to be disclosed by whom, um, what sort of time horizon associated with that is a point in time emission. So much of the mapping what we've been doing is mapping out what is the actual exposure to current emissions of firms, um, maybe across the scopes, which is quite nice. We have scope three as well, which is the downstream emissions, but it's not that the, the sort of forward looking evolution of those emissions as implied by firms own net zero targets. So that's gonna be, I think, that reported information, a key one to try and harness, and it's moving quickly. So we try and follow that, that, that catch that ball. Um, so far, we've been using a lot of private data providers as, as such. Um, but what I think is, is gonna be key there on the measurement side is, is pulling out those, those disclosures. And then I think what's gonna be obviously important is the actual validation, the benchmarking of this. This is uh, something which is sorely needed. Um, this, there's a lot of heterogeneity in the approaches towards climate risk, um, standardization. There's some initiatives that are here locally in Europe. There's some initiatives globally through the network for greening the financial system. will we'll bear, bear fruit surely, but it's going to take some time. And in the meantime, we still have to accurately measure as best we can. So that's the measurement side, certainly, is the quantity and quality of information. Modeling side, of course, I think our big challenge here is going to be the, the, the dynamic aspects. Um, so, you know, Stress testing for those of your listeners who are familiar, of course, is a static balance sheet or dynamic balance sheet. There are two ways you can run a, a stress test. And through a static balance sheet, you just assume nothing happens over the next few years in terms of firm behavioral responses or banks. So they see this calamity happening and they don't change your balance sheet at all. It seems a bit heroic when you move to a 30-year horizon. And I think this is where we need to try and layer in some assumptions, some thinking about how might banks react how might firms react to an evolving climate situation? Of course, some of it is a bit game theoretic and it is, it is in a way you know, extrapolative. You have to think about this, but it is something I think we cannot avoid and maybe to create some scenarios which are predicated on particular types of, of, of behaviors. Feedback and give us this idea of how could you have amplifications? How could you have you know, fire sales, uh, common holdings, herding, these types of things creating systemic risk? is going to be our big challenge going forward. And I wouldn't say we're there yet, but at least we have the foundational mapping that we can actually build upon and give you some of these estimates, uh, the financial industry as well, and work with the financial industry to better understand how this interplay may, may, take, may take place. Very, very interesting. Now, Paul, we've talked about banks and we've also talked about non-banks, but of course, you know, neither the banking system nor the non-bank financial system stand in a vacuum. They interact across each other on a daily basis. So what I wanted to ask you was, you know, what sort of risk mitigating or risk amplifying potential is there for interactions across financial institutions? Yeah, so I think um, you know, it's, it's clear that the financial system as a whole has to be analyzed if you want the macro perspective. And I think 
it's a fallacy of composition question. If you just looked at individual banks or individual asset managers and you say we can operate in a vacuum, you're right, this is not going to occur. Um, the likelihood is very high that everyone will be doing adjusting at the same time, particularly if physical risks become more salient or transition risks become more urgent because of policy measures, technological changes, sentiment shifts. You could really bring this forward and we all try and sell uh, collectively to no, no buyer at that stage, put it that way, or try and scramble for assets which are unavailable. Um, so that's obvious. I think what, what is key though for us, um, which is interesting to note in the, 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 the specifically climate physical risk side, is this idea of uninsured losses. That's, I think, a big one for us at the moment, this idea of protection gaps. So when you think about Carney's uh, speech to Lloyds of London back in 2016, um, I think it was quite the seminal speech at the time. He was talking about this idea of protection gaps and stranding. Um, and this is, this is clear. So, you know, you have a lot of, of, of financial market exposures are backed by physical collateral. Um, and often in the case of real estate lending or others, it's, it's really about you know, the actual structure that sits in a climatologically um, vulnerable place. Or you have insurability um, backing this. And those two things, I think at the collateral side, we've talked about a bit, that you could have collateral compromised by a climate event exactly when the, 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 the lender is in, in trouble and is sort of this, this wrong way risk and I think create a lot of amplification. But in terms of cross-sectoral point you're making is about insurability. And, and I think our, one of the findings we had which pretty, was pretty sobering is that only one third of climate related economic losses in the Europe, Euro area, so here in a developed market, seem to be insured. So around, around two thirds of the losses for climate related events could be actually um, not protected by insurance. Now, Clearly, you know, you think about insurance as diversification is a big thing, is it across geographies and the like. No, but I think if you see climate-related shocks as you know becoming a bit more prevalent in a correlated way, you could imagine insurance claims um, might increase in a way which is less manageable. Uh, and I think for the insurance sector, the big challenge, and they're they're they're, they're coping with, they're grappling with it. They've been dealing with this for longer than any of us. Is the idea that past event losses might not predicate, you know, be a, a good guide for the future. Uh, that randomness or correlations of events might not be still there. So this idea of diversification, this systematic versus systemic type of, of, of risk, um, you have to really think about as different. Um, and this idea that you, you, know, you could have this, this changing insurance supply dynamic in terms of the, the premiums that are being demanded or the actual availability of insurance um, really start to be con contracting at a time of growing demand as climate change uh, related insurance is sought. Um, so I think what we're worried about is this reinsurance model of cooling risks with diversification might need to be revisited somewhat. Now, that's an aside of insurance. You could talk about cross sectors. Of course, it's insurance and banks is an obvious one. The one which I think is probably quite interesting to watch, maybe even more interesting to watch, is about financial markets. Um, so, you know, they could be a, a key, you know, financial markets are pretty ingenious when they want to be looking at potential solutions to, to, to pending problems. And in mitigating climate risks, of course, you know, you would, you would hope that they are also coming with solutions. And it seems slowly they are. Now, of course, you don't want it to be a hot potato problem. Literally, we have the hot potato of climate change, global warming, starting to create fire sales. Um, but if it's done in a smooth enough way where we have enough innovation occurring along the way, it could be interesting. Um, that could be through both marketplace mechanisms. So I was talking earlier about portfolio rebalancing, asset repricing, but also financial instruments. And we're seeing innovation in this sphere. Um, so derivatives in particular. Um, so we've seen a lot of growth in green markets. Um, you know, ESG funds is an obvious one. Asset manage, assets under management are about triple what they were since, say, six, six years ago or so. 
green bonds is around eightfold larger in Europe. Um, catastrophe bonds is almost doubled. Emissions related derivatives around sevenfold, but those latter two components, cat bonds and emissions related derivatives are still pretty small. Um, the cat bond sector, I think is around, we, we estimate in 2020, around 14 billion US dollars. So it's certainly much, much lower than the trillions you tend to think about in the financial system. Um, but that said, I think as those elements grow, that might just help us, you know, scaling up those existing markets. Some of them in the U.S. You've had, of course, your weather's futures and options, or weather derivatives. We have also in the U.S. Uh, we have also some other sort of Latin American markets or South Africa. Those could be scaled up and potentially help with this question of creating some scope for virtuous um, feedbacks across sectors rather than sort of value-destroying ones. Just to lastly, I have talked a lot about the, of course, the climate element of climate hazards. There's, of course, the derivatives markets and emissions-related derivatives markets are also developing quite rapidly, um, as you expect to see, you know, some emissions trading schemes growing in sort of relevance or importance. Um, and, and also there you have blue bonds to protect marine areas, sustainability-linked bonds to incentivize sustainable investments are all in place. I think you know, all of this occurring has been quite a helpful and healthy development. Our big concern would be it's, it's developing relatively wild, you know, wild West style at the moment limited standardization, limited sort of accreditation of some of these elements. And that's going to be a big challenge. Yeah. And also in terms of, you know, taxonomy being diffused, so many countries and organizations have their taxonomy. The ratings on ESG are not correlated, whereas, you know, non-ESG bonds seem to be fairly correlated across ratings agencies. So we're still learning and we would hope that multilaterals like you would you know uh, would be a good guiding force in and sort of, you know convergence of standards and reporting uh lines um so since you brought up green finance um uh, paul uh, of course you know for a green transition we need a lot of green finance in the coming years and decades but there's also the big question of uh, greenwashing so give us the ecb perspective on the dealing with greenwashing yeah, it's, it's a very real problem. Um, so you rightly pointed out in ESGs that the correlation across ESG providers is, is at best weak. Um, and I think more concerning perhaps even is um, the BIS study and research we saw last year, um, which suggests that green bond issuance is not even associated with any reduction in carbon intensity over time. So it's, it's not even effective in its climatological aim. Um, and in fact, one of the interesting things they noted in the utilities sector Green bond issues, issuers actually have an average achieved smaller reductions in carbon intensity than their peers, which is mm -hmm. even counterintuitive in a sense. No? So I think with that, obviously, we have to be mindful of the fact that, that you need A, better disclosures, B, better standard, standards applied to those disclosures, including external ver verifiers where possible, and three is going to be C, about this idea of um, portfolio aggregation, taxonomies, as you point out. Um, and what we've seen in terms of some research has come out suggesting that external verifiers um, with green bonds actually, you know, signal this, this stronger commitment towards climate-friendly investment, and that results in lower intensity. So it can be actually quite effective. Um, so what we're seeing is a lot of uh, a proliferation of initiatives here. So the network for greening the financial system, as you rightly pointed out, the official sector could be hopefully a, a beacon or a, a source of, of potential initiatives here. They are a network for greening the financial systems. It's a big, big collective. I think it's over 80 central banks and supervisors now around the world. It's one of the biggest. Um, they're, they're now have a data gaps work stream dedicated to these questions. Um, and they've come out with some principles. They published some work recently. 
um, but also on the other side of the, the Financial Stability Board, G20, um, related bodies have been doing a lot of work now about trying to clarify what disclosures are needed um, and how will those uh, disclosures also be vetted. And that'll be key. In the meantime, I think we have to accept uh, that there's going to be some degree of, of difficulty in, in interpreting the quality of these disclosures uh, and add necessary caveats. Um, but if you know, I think as, as, as we all know, this expression, sunlight is the best disinfectant, a lot more transparency is going to help here. Uh, and interestingly, I think just to note here that, that, that I really liked a, a paper from the American Economic Review back in I think it was 1984. And Martin Helbig, uh, a great German economist, uh, gave, gave this, this uh, a speech once. I quite appreciated it. The orange markets the, the, in, in Florida. So when you took, there was, there was a question of, you know, where are the market inefficiencies? He, he claimed you cannot conflate allocative and informational market efficiencies. They're actually quite distinct. And this market was an interesting one because what you see is that if you take the orange market, this, this futures market of oranges, the, 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 the economists, which were, were financial engineers, which were under, underpinning this market, actually had better predictions of the weather than meteorologists, if you can imagine, um, based on backing up what you saw in futures prices. So clearly these were informationally efficient, highly informationally efficient markets, but they were not terribly allocatively efficient necessarily. So you can have a bit of a dichotomy. What I want to get at with all of this is this informational efficiency. You need disclosures, you need information. Otherwise, that's not going to be terribly efficient. Um, so we have meteorologists in the climate space, of course. We have also some, some elements of financial instruments. Uh, but those financial instruments, I think, are going to need to be better credited um, uh, and certainly predicated at least on better disclosures and the quality of these disclosures on top to actually be meaningful in moving the dial. So a lot's happening in that space. I think that's probably one of the main go-to areas at the moment in climate. So I think it's something we can expect will bear fruit soon. Gosh, so much to do, such a live area. So Paul, you really have your work cut out. I wish you and your colleagues the best of luck. And I wanna to touch base with you a year from now and hold you to all the things that you're seeing you're working on to see how much progress you have made. Uh, so again, uh, Paul Hebert, thank you so much for your time. Thanks a lot, great to be here and look forward to that trip next year, maybe with the office background rather than a virtual one. Or maybe in person, we'll see. Uh, thank you to our listeners as well for watching this episode or listening into the podcast channels. Uh, Kopi Time was produced by Martin Taki. Daisy Sherman validly provided additional assistance. It is for information only and does not represent any trade recommendations. All 62 episodes of Kopi Time are available on YouTube as well as on all major podcast platforms, including Apple, Google, and Spotify. As for our research publications, webinars, and live streams, you can find them all by Googling DBS Research Library. Have a great day.